Blog Talk Radio. So don't you will you come? 
patriotista Tu parte me pango a Juanme como a la africana Algo es bueno Balcón
as a tool for liberation. And that's what we're going to try to continue to do tonight as we discuss the theme, what did you learn? You know, sometimes we have experiences that we encounter over and over and over and over and over and over and over. And there seems to be something missing there because you shouldn't encounter a lot of things over and over and over and don't learn something from it. And maybe it's because you didn't learn nothing from it. This is why you continue to repeat the same thing. So we're going to discuss that thing tonight, and we'd like to invite you to come and join us by dialing in at 323-679-0841. But like always, you know how we do it on Africa on the Move. Let's get started with our party by introducing you to our political panelists and analysts for today's program. We first and foremost like to bring in Brother Haki from the African Wellness Association, and we'd like to welcome him to Africa on the Move. Welcome, Brother Haki. Uh, Brother Africa, thanks for having me. My name is Haki Kamathi Mashoki. Currently, I'm with African Awareness and Brother Africa. You know, my thing is all about institution building. Well, prior to any discussion with respect to institution building, I mean, there are certain, certain realities we have to confront in society. And one of the things that you alluded to, you talk about the fact that things continue to happen over and over and over, over again. There seems to be this great resistance in terms of learning suffering from these events. And certainly when we talk about in terms of devastating events or potentially devastating events, we have to talk about the role of totalitarianism in your society because there are many people in the society who actually believe that totalitarianism could never happen in the United States. Of course, I, I'm hard-pressed to understand that reasoning. I mean, when you look at the history, it's very, very clear in terms of the, the, <coughs> in terms of the components uh, <coughs> in existence that are perfectly suited for the, the, the evolution and the sustainment of uh, totalitarianism in U.S. society. But in any event, Brother Africa, check this out. Now, totalitarianism is defined as governmental systems that outlaws individual or group opposition to state mandates in which total control and regulation manifest. Dimensions of totalitarianism transcend U.S. borders and can be observed throughout much of the world. A recent report from the International Institute for Democracy reports at least half of the Western world are in a state of economic decline. This decline has cultivated worsening civil liberties and rule of law. The report concludes democratic institutions are being undermined by issues ranging from restrictions on freedom of expression, including protests and demonstrations, to increasing distrust in the legitimacy of elections. Contributing factors to the evolution of authoritarian strain can be attributed to unprecedented levels of inflation, seeping global recession, and climate change impact on supply chains. Now, while these factors precipitate the inevitability of authoritarian emergence, they do not reveal the long-term consequences or catalysts for systems of oppression sweeping the planet. In this context, authoritarianism inevitably leads to totalitarianism, with the catalyst being decadent capitalism that seeks to maintain its hegemony at all costs. Implicit in the inner workings of the decadent capitalist order sets the U.S. <clears throat> and its role it plays in exporting economic instability to the world. Now, in the case of the U.S., variables consistent with totalitarianism long preceded the 2008 subprime debacle and the destruction of global wealth. Back in 1971, Lewis Powell, who was then a corporate lawyer who later on became a Supreme Court justice, offered a memo in which he advocated total control, total corporate control over U.S. society, 
are defeated, a political left push for real democracy may captivate the populace, stripping elites of societal power. In fact, power views were embraced throughout various U.S. institutions. Interests of the masses were treated as non-issues, and government institutions' budgets reflected this indifference to the needs of the citizens. In the case of the Pentagon, Congress allocated $55 billion above and beyond what the Pentagon, Pentagon requested. Currently, sitting on $857 billion in finances, this money easily could have been used to fund transportation, veterans' education, justice, international affairs, environmental concern, housing, job training, and unemployment benefits, according to Congresswoman Omar. The reality is this kind of money will not be allocated to assist working people. The question is why. If working people are viewed as unimportant, questions arise. Specifically, as hopelessness and frustration sets in, how should this potential political instability be addressed by elites? No doubt totalitarianism would be useful in quelling emotions and the desire for real change among the populace. Defeating mass anger can only be accomplished by employing power of the state brutally and absolutely. Totalitarianism is a system that affords states maximum amount of control. Now, Powell's aspirations proved prophetic, prophetic as Nixon abandoned the gold standard, which increased access to credit for the ruling elites, culminating in deindustrialization de of the U.S. economy, where shipping U.S. jobs abroad, leaving U.S. factories abandoned and empty. For the capitalists, deindustrialization was a mixed success. Corporate access to bank loans skyrocketed, and with the loan increases, investments for production increased exponentially, making lots of money for the capitalists. However, deindustrialization downside increased U.S. unemployment and in the process lower wages. Ironically, by impoverishing the U.S. population, the level of consumption declined and all the production of commodities that could not be sold. Loss of corporate profits meant government revenues declined, and the only way for government to recoup lost revenues were high taxes for the populace. However, with declining consumption rates, by the year 2000, Federal Reserve's availability of credit meant corporate need to sell was not a priority. Wealth could not be obtained. Wealth now could be obtained without producing a single thing. Once relying on consumerism to pair the, the corporate bottom line, the population's ability to spend was not prioritized. Now, investments and stock buybacks will elevate corporate profits, and the needs of the citizens <laughs> to have jobs were a mere afterthought. The multitude of unemployed homeless, ill-educated, would, would, excuse me, would <coughs> promote, promote instability for political system. And the question becomes what to do with them. Now, these unproductive individuals in the minds of political elite had to be dealt with. Such legitimization of excuse me, totalitarianism would manifest as, as an objective. One of the philosophical underpinnings of legit, legitimate the legitimate the inevitability is the role of race. Race reflected in media narrative would convey interest for an ethnic-specific point of view where white interests are considered front and center in any discourse, political or otherwise. Numerous examples could be cited, but two examples exemplify the social conditions needed to increase receptivity, receptivity of totalitarianism. The first example involves culture wars, spearheaded by elites which attempts to weaponize critical race theory in 1619 project. While both represent academic disciplines, media messaging has reiterated at nauseum the attempt of both disciplines 
is to make white people feel guilty or anxious about being white. By this logic, why not end all information pertaining to the U.S. history? In misrepresenting critical race theory in 1619 Project, notions of an internal enemy gets justified. Justification will support government oppression of a group who is committed to baseless speculation. Tackle benefit of weaponizing critical race theory in 1619 Project makes denial of civil and human rights to African people plausible, but at the same time it creates the foundation to expand totalitarianism, which ultimately encompasses the entire population. And making the point another way, historically, in viewing chattel slavery, the horrors inflicted on Africans like beatings, murders, and general humiliation increasingly are being inflicted on poor white people. Notions containing, tot- containing totalitarianism and justices to one group does not hold up to scrutiny. Thinking totalitarianism can be compartmentalized would be, would be in error in grave, of great proportions. Opposition to government strategy to isolate specific ethnic groups must be fought. An exception example to legitimize totalitarianism is as follows. Recently, FBI agent Stephen Friend refused to investigate rioters involved in the January 6th insurrection. Friend's position is many of the rioters are innocent and persecution of the rioters is wrong and he would not abide by FBI policies. He further postulated the rioters could not get a fair trial in Washington, D.C., presumably because Washington is simply too liberal. Even more problematic, Senators Chuck Grassley of Iowa and Ron Johnson of Wisconsin want the agent reinstated under the guise the agent is a patriot. In the constitutional world of American iconography, the word patriot is normally affiliated with government with, with agreement with U.S. institutional mandates. The role of the FBI is to defend U.S. against enemies foreign and domestic. Attempting to subvert the peaceful transfer of power is not only a constitutional crime, but a fundamental threat to democracy itself. The only way the agent can be can be cast as a patriot, it would have to mean he exhibited values uniquely American. If these values of being uniquely American entail notions of the white man's land, the FBI agents represented a tra- tra- transgression where law-abiding white people were treated like Africans and carrying out their legal rights in their own country. In this context, it is easy to see affirmation of totalitarianism and its benefits. Under the cover of what is good for America, specifically white America, any ambiguity as to white rights must be challenged. An admonishment counting Make America Great Again likely will resonate with those on the far right who are primed to embrace dog whistles under the mistaken belief capitalism is concerned with the lives of poor white people. Such a deceitful strategy employed by elites to America generally is bound to resonate given the illiteracy rates in American society. Currently, 48 million citizens can't read in the U.S. 80 million citizens are now semi-illiterate or can't comprehend what they read, consisting of about 40% of the U.S. population. With 40% of the population vulnerable to populist rhetoric or nationalism, the odds are not only with totalitarianism finding home in the U.S., but we are manifest because the climate economic growth in the U.S. is 0.5 or 0.5 tenths or 1% for five years period demands totalitarianism for capitalism survival. Of course, by this point, capitalism is, is too far gone to be saved, but history dictates it will manifest regardless, bringing with it death and destruction on a monumental scale. Uh, the reality is that when we talk about in terms of the, 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 the growth of totalitarianism in society, we can no longer deceive ourselves into believing that, you know, uh, despite the signs that are prevalent everywhere, 
uh, that we have to come to, come to the realization that something fundamentally wrong. And, and, and the bottom line is that what we must do in our communities in terms of in terms of preparing to protect ourselves from the onslaught uh, created by totalitarianism is something that we must take very, very seriously. And if we don't take it very, very seriously, the bottom line is that, Brother Africa, we really have nobody to blame but ourselves. And I close with that. Thank you, Brother Haki. Next, we are happy to have our brother back from his uh, transition of getting well, and we'd like to greet him. He said, welcome back, Brother Anthony, to Africa on the Moon. Revolutionary greetings, uh, Brother Africa, uh, the fellow panelists, and the listening audience. Uh, thanks for the welcome back. I, I missed the program. I tried to listen to it online, but it's not the same as being able to participate. And Brother Anthony, would you like to introduce yourself in terms of your organization and, you know, say a few words about that? Certainly. Uh I'm an organizer for the All-African People's Revolutionary Party, GC. Objective is Pan-Africanism, the total liberation and unification of Africa under scientific socialism. We have this as objective because we believe that, uh, that uh, the unification of Africa under scientific socialism will solve most of the problems Africans worldwide are having. Thank you, Brother Anthony. From Brother Anthony, we'll make a transition to the man that you can't lose with the stuff that he used. That's our Brother Moses. You would like to welcome him to Africa on the move because only he can part the water. Brother Moses, welcome to Africa on the move. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Africa, and greetings to everyone within the sound of my voice, especially the illustrious panelists. My name is Robert Andrew Moses, and I've been in the struggle for scientific socialism from the moment I was introduced to Marxism during a government class in my high school years, 1968. I call Marxism the race to cure racism. I bear witness that there is one God, Jesus, who is the author and finisher of my faith, and that Mao Zedong is his messenger for government. Fathers, help your children. And we don't reverse correct verdicts. I am pro-choice, and I vote. I, I bear witness that women hold up half the sky. Therefore, I'm for the Equal Rights Amendment, ERA, yes. And the struggle continues to be to unite the many to defeat the few. The struggle is to, is to proclaim truth, and truth will set us free. If we just organize ourselves around that truth and see our common interests, and pursue our common interests proactively. And this is our struggle, and we must continue to speak truth to power and uh, not only talk to talk, but walk to walk. And I thank you, Brother Africa, for allowing me to be on the show. Always stand ready for the revolution, Brother Moses. Now we make our transition to our Sister Eleanor, and we would like to welcome her as well. Africa on the moon. Welcome, Sister Eleanor. Good evening, um, 
for the Africa fellow panelists and to our listening audience here and abroad. Thank you so much for joining us, and thank you so much for having me as a participant this evening. Thank you very much, Brother Africa. Anytime, Sister Eleanor. You know, we need a woman's perspective, and we need more. And if you're a woman looking at this program and you have something to say or you'd like to be a part of this process for some time, email us at AfroWaterMoon2, and let's have a dialogue. We want equal participation, and we definitely want to hear the voice from African women. So at this point in time, what we're going to do is take a revolutionary culture break, and when we come back, we will open up the segment What's going on in your world and the community? This is Brother Africa. It's the 27th day of January. In a few hours, you will truly be will be going with the African Awareness Association. We're on our way to Cuba. So don't you go nowhere. We'll be right back. This is Africa on the Moon. So vast, so great, the African embrace, the color of life, universal harmony, the earth supports our conscious effort for sustained humanity, human beings. Human love on a spiritual tip. So vast, so great. The African embrace. Live beyond love beyond your skin. To where you belong. Original nigga. Yeah. 
them egg and bubble Let me go out to break on it, take it down For the non get it out, it's all about Got some girls, so some snoop rap You know me there, all I'm running to fuck Get a fuck, man, I load up a drop Hope you drop, oh Keep up town, this is keep up town This is you speak pound Huh? 
when he proclaimed, quote, quotation, corporations should not take into account public interest, later adding, nor should government take into account the public interest, end quote. This statement belies competing interests between government or corporate interests on the one hand and the public interest on the other. In deconstructing this paradox, notions of democracy cannot exist, and with that, whose interests will be served by capitalism is established. Because the system of capitalism serves the interests of the wealthy capitalists, this reality must be hidden from the public. In obscuring the truth about capitalism, the injection of lies becomes an indispensable element of questionable narratives of capitalism propagated by elites to conceal the blanket inequality and exploitation of the masses by capitalism. Now, ingeniously concealed in capitalism is the systematic transfer of wealth from working and of poor people to the very wealthy. This feat is accomplished by, through fiscal policy like interest rates and taxation or monetary policy like monetary printing or bank reserve levels. The basis of transfer of wealth to the wealthy lies with tax policy essentially. This statement can best be highlighted by Duby's economic theory championed by economic elites. Once that's Duby's economic, economic theory in question is a laughter curve, which is largely credited with the Reagan-Thatcher era in the 80s that holds the correlation between tax policy and economic growth is inextricably linked, that high tax levels inevitably leads to a declining economy or negative economic growth. This still remains saying financial deregulation, privatization of state enterprises, and tax cuts for the wealthy will lead to higher economic growth and deficit reductions. Ironically, economic pundits point out the highest level of economic growth existed prior to Reagan's embrace of the Laffer Curve than after Reagan's two terms in office. <clears throat> Reagan's embrace of the so-called free, <coughs> free market capitalism <clears throat> resulted in federal deficits greater than all deficits over the last 200 years. In fact, between 1991, 1981 and 2006, the federal deficit increased from $591 billion to $990 billion. Currently, the federal deficit is set at over $6 trillion. In addition, when we talk about the embracing of the Laffer Curve, we talk about the concentration of wealth exploded. Under Reagan, supply-side supply economics and tax cuts and deregulation are big businesses, resulting in huge economic benefits to the top 10% of wage earners, enjoying 120% of GDP gains, while the bottom 90% was settled with only 25% of all economic gains. Lower taxes and deregulation made possible effective economic exploitation of the working class by lowering wages and cut back the services provided to working and or poor people. Now, now, despite insistence on pundits, there is no correlation between lower taxes and economic growth. The economic war against the poor continues unabated. Examples abound illustrating the absurdity of free markets, but to no avail. It was pointed out during both the Eisenhower and Truman administration, tax rates were high, 91 to 92, 91% respectively. And despite high tax rates, the economy grew. Experts reason, followed by IMF warning, free market capitalism would set a precedent where economic growth would be imperiled and the resulting inequality would prevent economic growth from taking place. In hindsight, the doomsday advocates were correct. Embrace the Laffer curve has resulted in 68% of the wealth held by 1% of the population. In 2022, this revelation is problematic because in capitalism, the velocity, velocity of money going through the system to ensure economic growth is key. By elevating economic structures that systematically ensure access to credit uh, to the wealthy, increases their personal wealth, but at the same time eliminates liquidity or reserves the economy, the economic system needs for growth and expansion. 
the end result is without money moving through the system, recession, depression, or high inflation is inevitable. Whenever, whenever these conditions manifest in capitalism, the inclination is to double down on laughter dictates and impose lower taxes for corporations in the hopes lower taxes would encourage increased production, investments, and employment. Currently, U.S. corporations pay a tax rate 15 to 30%. At these low corporate tax rates, the lowest among G7 states, one would think it would decrease production. Why would you have decreased production, decreased investments, and rising unemployment? <clears throat> Why would the existence of taxes are set so low? Now, ironically, capitalism policies geared toward the enrichment of the wealth, even if, even if attained, never seems to benefit the real economy. Despite very low rates of, of, of tax rates for corporations, the idea of these concessions will benefit society never materialized. In fact, foreign direct investment, which fell 40, 42% in 2022, employment and production, was co- which, were, which co- what corporations produced, fell to 1947 production levels. All continue to fall despite corporations having access to access to government credit and low taxes. Perhaps one can explain why monies continue to flow to corporations without tangible results for the country. Can anyone explain monies desperately needed to stimulate the economy is instead given to corporations to enrich stockholders? In lieu of this counterproductive policy, concealment by omission seems the only logical strategy for the capitalists. Now, the problem is complicated by the economic theory that exposes even in difficult economic times, low tax rates must be accompanied by borrowing. Borrowing was, was, was specifically used to assist the corporate bottom line. Despite historical precedent demonstrating supply-side economics or giving corporations more credit or lower taxes, has never materialized in any tangible benefits for, for the population. This ingenious plan of reducing corporate taxes, given many co- major corporations pay zero taxes and corporate access to credit, ensures wealth accumulation is confined to the investor class even as the economy declines. President Clinton recognized demand-side economics or raising taxes on corporations or higher taxes on corporations would facilitate tangible benefits for the population in terms of compelling corporations to hire more people to offset tax increases by increasing production or employing more workers. In the first time in over 30 years, the federal budget was balanced and it was achieved by by a net hiring of over 250,000 people per month. This economic approach was pre- was preceded by President Obama, who authorized similar spending, again, demand-side economics, to reinvigorate and avert depression-level events leading to decimation of the economy. Even though Obama did not get the $3 trillion originally sought to stimulate the economy, the approval of the $787 billion approved was sufficient to create 4 million jobs, save 1.6 million jobs, and avert a major depression. What is interesting about Obama's strategy to save the economy was the opposition from the right wing. This opposition in part galvanized as a result of government dollars used to help ordinary citizens or working people. Had the money been used solely to pad corporate profits, even if the end result was depression, the outcry from the right wing would not have materialized since they would have been the beneficiaries. This hostility toward the masses in no small, no small part underscores the resistance of right-wingers to define the current state of the U.S. economy as a recession because personal wealth is more important than the state of the economy as far as the right-wing is concerned. Technically, two consecutive quarters of negative growth, economic growth is a recession. There are two leading indicators used to gauge whether or not a recession exists. 
One is GDP growth, and the second is labor statistics. Now, the Bureau of Economic Analysis states that GDP declined two consecutive quarters in 2022, six-tenths of one percent in quarter number one, 1.6 percent in quarter number quarter number two, with a projected increase of 2.6 percent in quarter number three. Hardly encouraging. The labor market is even less so. In the event, unemployment rises between four-tenths to five-tenths five of one percent over three months, according to some pundits, indicates a recession is in, in, is at play. PwC, PwC states 50, 52% of companies are, are freezing hiring, 44% are extending job offers, 50% of com- companies are reducing the number of employees. Make no mistake, unemployment in the U.S. is growing and will have a devastating impact on the economy. In light of these numbers, will the National Bureau of Economic Research proclaim the U.S. is in recession? Probably not. Economic tools specifically to under, uh, undercount unemployment will likely be utilized. Of the, of the six models that exist to, un, to undercount unemployment, only one model provides an objective assessment of unemployment. History suggests that social or outright lies will be at play to befuddle the masses or, or placate investors into believing the U.S. economy is resilient. I will submit no amount of lies can conceal the very real pain experienced by so many in the U.S., and foreign investors are intimately aware of this fact. And because foreign investors are unwilling to invest in the U.S. economy, we can anticipate a further decline in the U.S. economy. And so with that in mind, Brother Africa, I think it's important we understand that the kind of unique deception employed in terms of capitalism exists for a reason. It exists because fundamentally, when you talk about the interests of the masses of people, capitalism could never accommodate the interests of the masses of people. And it's clearly, uh, fun- I mean, we fundamentally have to understand the reality if we are to move forward in the society. And I close with that. Because the high key, capitalism is only for those who got capital. If you don't have no capital, you can't join the big boy club. That's all the people have to remember. If they can remember that, then maybe they have learned something today. Let's move on to Brother Anthony. Brother Anthony, tell us what's going on in your world and community. Okay, uh, several things. Um all of them point to the fact that the that the, that the struggle between the haves and have-nots is intensifying, and as the resources of the planet become more scarce, and this is at uh, at the root of uh, some of the observations that Brother Haki made earlier regarding uh, the impact of capitalism. And uh, and actually, uh, you know, uh, the lack of growth in the economy. Um, You uh, we've got to examine carefully uh, the trends that are that are taking place before our very eyes. Uh, Corporations are cutting back on staff. Not adding to it, cutting back. As a matter of fact, uh, some of the big tech companies announced uh, layoffs of uh, over uh, 2,000 people last week. And uh, this year isn't even a month old yet. And, uh, you know, and we see the conflict intensifying as the resources of the planet become more scarce 
and are unable to serve the needs of uh, people. Uh, well, not in a way that we're accustomed to living, but, uh, you know, the way, uh, but in order to maintain that high uh, lifestyle, uh, you know, then, uh, you know, then we have to be lied to about uh, the reality of the unemployment situation. And the essence of it is that it's getting worse. And it's going to continue to get worse until the system is overthrown and replaced by a, uh, a scientific socialist form of government. Thank you, Brother Anthony. And from Brother Anthony, we're going to the man who can pardon the water. Brother Moses, what's going on in your world and in the community? Well, Brother Africa, it's like this. It's a struggle of with our, well, with our faith in the struggle, and uh, it's impossible to accomplish anything. And so we have to have a, a goal, an objective, and I say revolution is the solution. And so we find that um, Brother Bernie Sanders has been on the on the uh, on the horn uh, talking about the conditions of the working class in the U.S. of A. And he just describes the situation with, in terms of class antagonisms and and um, the different the contradictions between the poor getting poor and the rich getting richer. And so uh, he does a pretty good analysis. I suggest if anybody hears gives that speech, I think it's on YouTube. And uh, meanwhile, Friday, there was a a forum, uh, international forum uh, on, on uh, um, well, I want to say Salvador Allende, but wow, I don't know why. Um, um, Julian Assange, Julian Assange, um, forum to to protest his extradition to the USA for 175 years sentence, um, and we, we need to stop it as soon as possible to, to get him out of the the situation. Uh, uh, meanwhile, uh, I don't know. Apartheid is is a is a crime against the soul, as uh, Bishop Tutu said. And so, you know, we have to continue to struggle against the regime that uh, holds our brothers and sisters in bondage um, um, in terms of a stripping up of their land and their their identity as a people. That's in Palestine, and so that struggle continues. Um, I'll leave it right there. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Moses. And from Brother Moses, we're going to Sister Eleanor. Sister Eleanor, what's going on in your world and the community? Well, um, as Brother Moses said, on Friday, January 20th, the National Press Club hosts uh, the Belmarsh Tribune, sponsored by Progressive International and Har- um, Harlan Stiftson. 
Um, the Belmont Tribune uh, came to Washington, D.C., bringing expert witnesses together with uh, uh, together to present evidence uh, of the attack and crimes against Julian Assange and and the importance of press freedom and to let President Biden and the Department of Justice know that it's time to protect the First Amendment and to drop the charges against Julian Assange. Uh, um, There were some great speakers there. Stella Assange was there. Pentagon Papers whistleblower Daniel Ellsberg was there. Um, Jeremy Colburn, he's a journalist and author, formerly a part of the British Parliament. And there were numerous other people uh, that were there supporting uh, freedom of press, but mainly um, fighting for the release of Julian Assange. On February 19th, um, there's going to be an anti-war rally against the, it's called Rage Against the War Machine, that will take place at Lincoln Memorial, sponsored by the People's Party, and oddly enough, by the Libertarian Party. But what's important, the demands include freeing Julian Assange. And uh, Medea Benjamin from Code Pink and Garland Nixon and Jimmy Dore and others will be there. That's going to be on February 19th. In addition, we see that... uh, the U.S. has put pressure on Japan, and consequently, the Japanese are expanding uh, their military presence uh, by uh, going, uh, planning on raising their uh, budget to two uh, percent uh, of their national income, and. Uh, this is to quote surround China, and uh, this this is uh, a, 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 an outrage. Um, what what has happened is uh, the Japanese had always used caterpillars, whatever they are, as a form of defense. So that's just a defense. They never had a counter defense. But what they're doing now, they plan to double their military spending and will add $315 billion to the Japanese defense budget over the next five years and make the Japanese military the world's third largest after the United States and China. Defense spending will escalate. Uh, to 2% of the gross domestic product equal to the uh, the goal of the United States, that the United States has actually set for its NATO allies. Now, the Japanese economy is the world's third largest economy. But what's sad about this whole thing is the Japanese government is planning to buy up to 500 Lockheed Martin Hobby Hawk missiles and joint air-to-surface standoff missiles um, and procure more naval vessels and fighting aircraft. And they plan on building 
their own cyber warfare uh, machine as well as uh, their own hydrosonic guided missiles and also to produce their own advanced fighter jets. Now, this is highly irregular for the Japan. We haven't seen this kind of military escalation since uh, World War II. So, uh, you know, we have to continue to fight for the dismantlement of um, uh, NATO, and uh, it's a threat to um, the world. And uh, also, uh, their Pierre, um, um, uh, what was the president of uh, France, Pierre? I'll have to probably get back to you with that. I think his name was, uh, what was his name? uh, He was a very famous president of of France. He uh, spoke out. He's a banker. Trudeau. And he spoke spoke out against, oh, he spoke out against, uh, uh, no, it's de Gaulle. It was it's the grandson of Charles de Gaulle that I'm thinking of, uh, an old CIA nemesis, uh, as he's called by uh, um, the folks at Covert Action Magazine. But he spoke out against the United States and this uh, what he calls uh, um, the United States plan warfare against Russia. He he says uh, that the scale and the number of the sanctions shows that all of this was organized a long time in advance, and it is an economic war from which the Americans are the benefactors um, that the United States uh, sells their gas to the Europeans for a price four to seven times higher than they do in, in in the domestic market here in the United States. According to Pierre, public opinion is beginning to understand what the you know what's really the motivation behind this war against Russia. So uh, there's been uh, quite a bit going on, and uh, it's good to see that. Uh, People are speaking up out that are in position. Uh, A corporate consultant, he's a corporate consultant and a bank manager. And as I said, he's uh, the uh, grandson of uh, um, Charles de Gaulle. And he told the French-Russian Dialogue Association on December 26th, um that uh, you know, the the he was in protest uh of the intellectual dishonesty in the ukraine ukrainian crisis because the trigger of the war are, are the u s and nato that the united states unfortunately uh con- uh continues the military escalation and making not only the Ukrainian population suffer, but also the European population as well. 
And I, I, I can't agree more that by providing the Ukrainians with these weapons caused death and destruction across the Ukraine. And this should have been handled as a domestic problem with Russian people and not an international conflict. But uh, this is um, pushing the expansion of NATO, which is something no one on planet Earth wanted to see. The Soviet Union has been demolished since 91. We should not be attacking the sovereignty of Russia or any other country. Right now, we see the sovereignty of the uh, Palestinians being threatened with the uh, new right-wing government in Israel. And uh, no one's standing up against Russia, um, the uh, Israeli apartheid. And uh, this uh, crazy form of uh, Zionism that uh, uh, they're killing a, a, a Palestinian a day. But we also see this happening in the United States. A young man from Washington, D.C. was visiting relatives in, in uh, California recently and he was uh, a school teacher 31 years old and was tasered and subsequently died being arrested by the police you can see on the webcam him screaming that they're killing him and he finally tried to run away and they used their body weight which you know how dangerous the body weight is on an individual from George Floyd and then they went on to tase him in it after um, holding him down with their bodies. And he subsequently died or was pronounced dead at the hospitals uh, in L.A., I believe. So we are continuing to see these tragedies. And also something interesting that Brother Haiki brought to our attention was uh, a young man in uh, a child in Georgia, 15 miles out of Atlanta, bringing uh, to the attention of his uh, school board that uh, he was being victimized by these racists uh, in the community. And they subsequently uh, lowered his GPA and, and, and other harmful things to him when he attempted to transfer out of that particular school district. So we see that we have to continue to fight authoritarianism and uh, uh, united. We will not be defeated, but uh, we have to do everything we can now for Mother Earth. You see the average person doing, uh, ignoring Mother Earth, refusing, make sure if you use a can to rinse it so that it can be recycled. Make sure that you are paying attention and you do not take your behavior for granted, that it has an impact on the planet and on others. So that's about it. Um, you know, I could go on, but I think I, I'll leave it right here. I know you, Thank Sister Alnoy, you had a full report, and I know our listening audience enjoy it. Thank you very much. And what we're going to do right now, we're going to take a rubbish and cultural break. 
And when we come back, we can make our transition to our theme tonight. What did you learn? That's right. We said it. We asked the question. What did you learn? What did you learn? That's the question for today. This is Africa on the Moon. It's under the banner the African Awareness Association. We'd like to thank everyone up to this point who have been a great supporter of supporting the African Awareness Association as it began to launch its Freedom Ride to Cuba about in eight hours. They'll be on their way in Cuba. And we'd like to thank everyone for their support. We understand that they have many obstacles put in front of them, like always. Those who struggle to move forward, they will always find a way to overcome those obstacles. So right now, you listen to Brother Africa. We're going to continue to move down the road of liberation. We're going to a rubber share culture break. And when we come back, let's discuss the theme, what did you learn? This is Africa on the move. Oh, <laughs> 
second time today Everybody scatters And hopes it goes away How many kids they've murdered Only God can say
Welcome to Candid Africa, truthful and unapologetic. And I want to talk about the issue of access to vaccines. We have made a proposal which is supported by more than 100 countries. And what we have said is we want, and this comes back to what the youth were saying as well, they want to know whether they have a continent which will help to develop their skills, where they can thrive. But what do we want? We want to be able to make our own vaccines. And we will deal with the issue of reluctance uh, for our Africans to take vaccines. But we want to make vaccines. We don't just want to fill and finish and package, which is what we are being offered. That we want you to build a capacity to fill, finish, and package, and we will send you the drug substance. And we say, no, we want you to relax the intellectual property rights for a while so that we can make the drug substance because we have the capability. And there are quite a number of countries on the continent that can. And right now we've got countries like Egypt, Nigeria, uh, Ghana, Senegal, Rwanda, South Africa, and Kenya Easily, they have the capability, the manufacturing capability, and we are saying we want to be able, we want to go beyond just getting the substance from Europe or wherever, filling and distributing. We want to make the drug substance because that is where the intellectual property resides. And that is where we want our young people who are epidemiologists, who are scientists, to see that there is a future for them. Then they will not go to Europe. They will not go to America. They will stay here because they will know that they can work effectively and display all the skills we have. Now, what does the, world, the, the, the northern part of the world do? They say, no, we know what is good for you. We just want you to do fill and finish, and that's it. And we say, no. <laughs> We no longer want that. You did that long ago when you colonized us. And when you raped and pillaged our countries, we're saying, no, now we have the capability and we want to make all these things ourselves. Now, quite often we find that there is a bit of paternalism that underpins the relationship between us. I'll give you a very good example. After Omicron uh, was announced, I was due to travel to West Africa. And in traveling uh, in the wake of Omicron, I received calls from the four presidents that I was going to travel to, President Makisal, Buhari, Ouattara, uh, as well as uh, Akufunana. And they said, we've heard about this Omicron, Omicron are you still coming? We want you to come. What can we do to help? And, and I said, President, 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 if 
you still relaxed about our coming, we are coming. A plane load of us, together with journalists, we got on the way. Before I left, I also got some calls from Europe. And the calls were so paternalistic. They were saying, hello, President Ramaphosa, we've heard about this Omricon. I am sorry to tell you that we are banning travel to Europe from South Africa and Southern Africa. No discussion, no attempt to hear what our views are. And I'm saying that the relationship is to, needs to be mutually respectful. We need to respect one another. The African presidents respected me as we respect one another. But from Europe, I just got a message of saying, we banned travel, thank you, goodbye, see you next time. That's not the way to conduct relationships. Did you like or hate what you That's right. You heard evil reasons why the West stopped Africa vaccine. Evil reasons. Evil reasons why the West stopped African vaccine. What did we learn from this segment that you just heard, panelists? Since tonight is our theme, what did you learn? Let's start off with this segment. How the West stopped Africa from producing its own vaccine. What did we learn? What is the lesson behind this particular behavior where Africa is being fought against from being able to be independent when it comes to developing their own health care? Brother Haki, you're in the hot seat. You're going to take the heat tonight, Brother Haki. Talk to me. Yeah, let me first per, let me first apologize to Sister Eleanor. I was reading some information pertaining to the history of Canada, and I came up and I was reading about Trudeau. And the president I was thinking about was Pierre Berigovi, and um, so I confused the two names. So it was intellectual laziness on my part. So I'd apologize in, in, in that regard. Uh, I think that, you know, um, you know, Brother Africa, you know, the question in terms of paternalism, you know, uh, it, it, you know it's, it's not a new question. I mean, it's, it's a question historically that's been raised on the continent in respect to, you know, African-U.S. relationships. So it's not a new term. And so when, when President Ramaphosa speaks of it, he speaks as though somehow it's, it's, it's in fact that this, this, this kind of demeaning relationship is something new in terms of African-U.S. relations. And it's not new. And it starts first and foremost with the economic system, which is which is which serves the interests, particularly of, of of the United States in the West. And so the question in terms of what what are Africa going to do in terms of divorcing itself from an economic system which ensures the the the, the impoverishment of the continent, which ensures the degradation and demoralization of the continent, what are African leaders going to do in that regard? So it seems at a very fundamental level. If you're going to talk about not being treated, treated, created, treated paternalistically, then one of the first things you have to do is you have to you have to divorce yourself from any type of system which fundamentally treats you as somehow uh, childlike. And so, therefore, I would like to hear more about in terms of you know what South Africa can do specifically in terms of addressing not only the issues in terms of in terms of the prevalence or the or, or the continuation of apartheid in South Africa. But what you can do in terms of fundamentally uniting with other African states 
to 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 rid yourself of you know of, of U.S. influence, particularly when it comes to to currency or or or, or trade. And so therefore, it's so so when we talk about this, this notion that the U.S. would would have the the gall the audacity to tell South African leader South African president, uh, listen, uh, you know. Uh, we, we we deem your country a threat in terms of COVID-19, so therefore we're going to cut you off from any type of lending rights to come to America. Uh, sort of underscores the kind of a uh, 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 master-child relationship, which I think you know, uh, it, it, you know, Africa African leaders have to fundamentally reject. But it's not rejected so much in terms of what you say; it's rejected in terms of what you do. So I like to see African leaders, you know, uh, use this as an example. In terms of you know the kind of paternalistic mindset that's so prevalent among American leadership uh, to, inter- to 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 innovate you know uh, uh, projects, uh, policies to innovate institutions within those countries, in terms of you know affirming that in fact that this kind of paternal relationship has come to an end. But until Africa fundamentally creates institutions, the fundamentally fundamental state that this paternalistic Mindset in terms of U.S. relationship with African states, until those institutions are innovated, I, I suspect that this paternalistic relationship will continue. It wasn't too long ago, Brother Africa, when they when they summoned the 49 African leaders to the White House to, to dictate to African leaders, this is what we this is what we this is what we want from you, as opposed to what can you as opposed to what can the U.S. do for Africa. And so this kind of paternalism is, is, is has a long a a, long, a a a very deep and long history. And so, therefore, I'm just waiting to see in terms of the kind of institutions that come about that refute fundamentally this notion that, in fact, that somehow Africa is a step stepchild, you know, you know, American foreign policy. But until then, brother Africa, you know, talk is good, but I like to see institutions to address the issue in terms of confronting this, this paternalism. Thank you, brother Haki. Brother Anthony, what did you learn from this recent segment as relates to the West? doing all they can to keep Africa from being able to develop its own vaccine. The mic is yours, Brother Anthony. Talk to me. Certainly. Um, learn that uh, that uh, that uh, the, the imperialists are determined uh, to keep Africa from acquiring the technology necessary to develop its own resources. And I think that's critical. Uh, because it means that uh, that uh, uh, we have a fight on our hands for genuine independence, uh, which the imperialist countries are, are, are not going to give up without a struggle, and uh, it's going it, it, to it's going to take the armed struggle to bring that about. Uh, let's see, and uh, let's see. I mean, Africa has has always been rich in uh, in natural resources and human resources, for that matter. The th- uh, what has ha- what has held Africa back is uh, is a lack of political unity and its lack of access to the technology necessary to transform. Uh, materials found in nature into materials that would be useful for us. And, um, you know, our continued disorganization 
uh, plays into their hands, so so to speak. And uh, you know, and that's why we uh, we put heavy emphasis on on joining an organization uh, when an individual first joins the AAPRPGC. And that is because we believe that political education is paramount at this stage in our history. That sounds like a winner to me, Brother Anthony. Let's move forward to our Sister Eleanor. Sister Eleanor, what did you learn from this segment? Yes, you can come uh, in there, Sister Eleanor. Yeah, I, I, well, of course, um, we have talked about previously the struggle uh, when uh, the South African president first uh, urge Moderna and Pfizer to allow them to produce their uh, own vaccines and to address the issue of vaccine hesitancy. We see this as a, a big struggle, and it should have been addressed at the summit. Uh, it seems like that would have been one of the issues addressed at the summit Uh with with uh, Biden in October, however, it wasn't, and so we learned that we continue to be trying to play catch up. But what's more important is when he talked about the availability of human resources and other resources, it just made me think of like the Congo, where eighty eight percent of uh, of it is forest land. And after the Amazon, it is the largest region where their trees are pulling carbon dioxide. It makes me think of of the Congo and other countries that are producing magnesium and cobalt. And the issue becomes how do and how does Africa change uh, what had happened to it in the past, for example, the way the diamonds were mined, that we do not mine the cobalt, the magnesium, the uranium, the iron ore, and all of the things that are needed to wane the world off of carbon-produced product, carbon-producing products. So this is an opportunity, and it shows that the first step in terms of dialogue is being taken. He's starting with the issue of the vaccine. And I think that that should have been the topic at the summit in October because one of the things that Biden discussed, President Biden discussed in October, was the fact that the U.S. had given 231 million doses of the vaccine to to, uh, African nations. Well, that didn't cover the the demand for vaccines. So, uh, again, we see us being very paternalistic. But Africa and Africans, uh, many African leaders want to see a new day where they actually uh, stand as independent, sovereign nations, ready to do business with like folks. Uh, but they do not wish to be patronized. They do not wish uh, 
to be the economic uh, backbone for failing Western um, culture right now. So um, whether it's uh, uh, Mozambique or 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 whom. um, or whether it's uh, Niger or whatever the nation, right now the concern is, one, the African economies are booming. Um, they're booming in technology. Um, South Africa is booming in manufacturing of automobiles, as is Morocco, Um uh, Niger is emerging as a high-tech hub. Um, we see, uh, as I mentioned, the mining of, uh, of, uh, in, 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 in uh, Gabon and in, 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 in the Congo. So we, we, we've got to turn this around, and the U.S., what appeared to be a very uh, naive, you know, very, the the African Growth and Opportunity Act appeared to be something for Africans is really something for U.S. business because they've jumped in feet first and are, um, whether it's Getty or whomever, they're finding ways to extort minerals, and uh, they are um, using um, their old-fashioned initiatives that, that would make it easy for the, uh, the U.S. to have green energy companies invest in Africa. But I do not believe Africa is going to allow for the status quo uh, to stand. Um, I think this speech demonstrated that when he spoke out to uh, uh, President Biden and industry in the United States, he was speaking to the world, addressing the World Health Organizations and all others. This is a new day, and we are ready to manufacture our own pharmaceuticals, our own automobiles, and to readdress how we mine things like iron ore, cobalt, lithium, copper, uranium, magnesium, and the many other (coughs) minerals that the world so badly needs that now is more valuable than gold or diamonds. So this is a new day. Thank you, Sister Alnua. Brother Mo, just talk to us. What did you learn when you heard this piece on how the West, how you is blocking Africa from becoming independent in the area of producing their own vaccines? What did you learn? Yeah, well, we refer we refer you to Rodney. Walter Rodney's uh, How Europe Underdeveloped Africa as a background to um, this old problem. Uh, um, I'm, I'm um, 
I'm I'm not going to say anything right now. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Moses. You're listening to Africa on the Move. We are discussing the theme tonight. What did you learn? What we're going to do real quickly, take a quick rubber shirt across the break, and we'll come back and we'll continue the discussion. What did you learn? And you can join us by calling 323-679-0841. Come on, sit in the seat and take the heat so you can define it and stand behind it. Then you'll be walking and acting like a real man. This is Africa on the Move.
blood clots, fuck shots They fly through the truck spots, robots Can't give a damn who the fuck shot Clean cop, clean cop, fucking with the dirty cop Don't act like your ass never heard of that Clean cop, clean cop, rolling with the lean cop Still trying to act proud as a peacock You know that lean cop might need a detox Motherfucker try to pull me out my Reeboks But I swing like Jack in a beanstalk Chop him down when these bitches try to lock me down Hit the ground, hit the turf, walk the earth Kill, kidnap your mind, patty hurt Bust the verse that'll make your ass be reversed Kill the curse that was placed on the universe West Coast warlord, lock it in the black night Fuck a black and white when they ain't acting right Good cop, good cop, filling out your report Bad cop asking you to distort Bad cop asking you to lie in court Send another young brother up north Send another young sister off course Why these motherfuckers chill on the golf course Police showing out for the white cop Police showing out for the white cop Police showing out for the white cop Police showing out for the black cop Lazy cop Fucking with that crazy cop Always bragging about the new case they got Die cop with that suicide cop Tell the truth cop with that true lie cop Are you fucking high cop? Don't even try cop Ain't no motherfucking drugs up in my spot All you find in my closet is a high top And my motherfucking ticket to the skybox Hold up nigga, I'm a rider Use a roller, yes the controller Make me mad, that's when I get stole up The incredible hocus bipolar Come out the cup, knock off the rust Throw my hands up, so you still wanna bust The Trojan horse is full of excessive force When they try to get aggressive, niggas off the court Police showing out for the white cop 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 Cop, good cop, where is your dignity? Where's your empathy? Where is your sympathy? Bad cop, where's your humanity? Good cop, is that just a fantasy? Hell on that nigga, snitch on that bitch Truth be told, motherfuck the blue code Fuck the po-po, acting like Depot Already know, Craig, I let the brick go Black lives matter, it's not chit-chatter Cause all they wanna do is scatter brain matter A mind is a terrible thing to waste A nine is terrible in your face The mace has a terrible fucking taste The pen is a terrible fucking place The kings all hate the fucking ace The judge sabotage my fucking case Racist motherfucker There's a difference between revolution and reform. Big difference. In reform, a man observing a foundation, observing a system, sees many problems. But he assumes that there's nothing wrong with the system. The foundation of the system for him is a good system. Thus, what he seeks to do is to change the building as best he can, but he wants to leave the foundation intact. Example, if I came to this building, it's Ackerman Hall, is it not? If I came to Ackerman Hall and I looked at the foundation, the foundation was falling. It was just falling, couldn't possibly stand. If I were a reformist, I'd say, okay, put a piece of board over that. So we cover the foundation. We haven't touched it. And then I'll come here and say, put a window there. Put a door here. Put a frame here. Put two rooms where there used to be one. What I'm doing is reforming the system. I am trying to make it look different, but I'm keeping the same rotten foundation. You must understand that because this country is full of reformists, black people notwithstanding. 
And these reformists have a tendency to deceive you to let you believe that things are really being changed when in fact the foundation has not been touched and the longer it stays, the more rotten it becomes. The more rotten it becomes. A revolutionary comes into the building, observes Ackerman Hall and says, looks at the foundation and said, hey, this foundation is filthy, it's rotten, it's corrupt. It must be torn up. A new one must be put in its place. Once he makes that decision, and once that theoretical decision which he's made is demonstrated actively in his day-to-day -day life, you have a revolutionary. Thus, a revolutionary is not someone who seeks to reform a system. He's someone who seeks to replace it. I'm a revolutionary. I'm not a reformist. I want the American system destroyed. It must be destroyed and has to be replaced. It has to be replaced. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. Again, I'm not calling for revolution. I see it coming, and I want to be part of the solution. I don't want to be part of the problem. I've been the victim too long, so I want to be part of the solution. I am saying that all of us must opt for revolution. All of us must opt for revolution. Now, revolution is very scientific. There's nothing emotional about it. There's nothing emotional about it. President Sekou Toure, a wise and courageous African revolutionary, says that in revolution there is no sentimentality. There is none. Whether I like something or do not like something, it is scientifically determined for me, thus I must do it. So I have no sentiments involved in my work. I just have to do what I have to do, and I will do it the best way I can. Best way I can. Now, revolution, we said, follows scientific laws. If you come and you look at the foundation and you see the foundation is rotten and you say that you want to replace this foundation, you want a new system, you're asking for revolution. Because what you're saying is that you want another system where there is a system. And we know scientifically that no two things can occupy the same place at the same time. I mean, that's logic. So if you say that uh, you're against capitalism and you want another system put in the place of capitalism, then all you're saying is that you want revolution because capitalism and this other thing cannot occupy America at the same time. Only one, only one will occupy it. Only one will be dominant. Thus, if you say you want revolution, you understand you're talking about scientific principles. Two systems cannot occupy the same space at the same time. I'm opposed to capitalism. I seek, I seek an economic system which must follow the principles of scientific socialism. This system must come, will come, all over the world, America notwithstanding. It must come and will come. To you listen to Brother Kwame Ture on revolution versus reform. And we're speaking tonight on the thing, what did you learn? Now, all the years Africans have been in the so-called USA, we have not resolved this issue of understanding properly the difference between revolution and reform. Brother Haki, we come back to you. What did you learn when one talked about revolution versus reform? Give me your critique, Brother Haki. Where we continue to go wrong in that dynamic or those two forces, revolution versus reform? Yeah, well, I, I, it's a very pivotal question, uh, revolution versus reform. Uh, one of the things is that, you know, people want uh, 
a better situation. Uh, they want better conditions. The problem is that you have to understand just in terms of you know how systems are uh, our systems are constructed. There has to be a foundation in terms of how that system uh, is is constructed. And unless you address that foundation, the fundamental, the most fundamental aspect of that of that of that ins, of that institution, then the bottom line is that you're not going to simply tweaking here, tweaking there. It, it's not going to change the fundamental problems that that system uh, embraces. Uh, for instance, if you talk about poverty, you see, it's it's fine that you have food kitchens, you know, in terms of feeding people, and that's a very noble thing. The problem is that you know if you if you really want to eradicate you know uh, um, uh, home I mean um, um, hunger in society, then the solution is not so much in terms of giving people food. The solution is making it possible for people to earn money to acquire food on their own. And so in that regard, when you talk about the potential in terms of you know the empowerment of of of, of people in terms of being able to actually earn food. Uh, then essentially what you're saying is that without some serious revolution, without changing that system that's already in place, the bottom line is that what the people need most in terms of, you know, in terms of being empowered would not be forthcoming because you have a system in place which fundamentally disempowered people. It says that we won't give you power, but for now and then, maybe once a week, you can get some food. And so, therefore, this question in terms of revolution reforms become very, very important. I think also, let me just pick it back on something that um, – uh, I think Brother Anthony said, I think it's also key in terms of this question, in terms of, re- you know, reform versus revolution. One of the things when we talk about scarcity, I think it's important we, 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 we understand that. But also when we talk about scarcity, we talk about something essentially man-made or politically inspired. Uh, for instance, in the context of capitalism, when you talk about scarcity, keep in mind the inefficiency of capitalism in and of itself creates scarcity. So if you have a situation where you know where, where if you if you had some kind of planning in place in terms of the allocation of say uh, 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 the use of fertilizer or specifically the kind of crops that you're going to you're going to grow, if you had some organized plans in terms of doing that, uh, then you can facilitate this question in terms of people's needs in terms of people need for specifically the need for food. But if you have a situation where the idea in terms of efficiency go evolved the way on profitability in terms of how much money you can make, then you don't create a policy in terms of agriculture that's going to, that's going to be effective or efficient. You create one that's going to generate the most amount of profit or wealth. That's what capitalism does. It goes around the world and does that. So as a consequence, we have a situation in Africa where African people can't, don't, don't, grow, don't grow crops that are in interest to the masses of people in Africa. They grow crops in the interest of people in the West. In that context, it creates the most inefficiency, but again, but serves serve the interest of wealth. Uh, those kind of arrangements are, are maintained, you know, at the expense of the opportunity for everyone to have nourishing food throughout the world. And so we have to understand fundamentally this scarcity is something that is man-made, something that is structural, something that is part and parcel of how capitalism works. Also, when, when we talk about the question in terms of reform versus revolution, I think you can't get around the question in terms of political concerns. I mean, you know, one thing that's very, very clear about that, you know, power concedes nothing without a fight. And one of the things that we, you know, we, we talk about, you know, people keep on talking about, when you talk about capitalism, you're talking about economics. And I keep on refuting that position. I keep trying to get people to understand it's not about economics. It's about power. If it was about economics, and a lot of decisions that are made in terms of the economic arena 
will be made in, in such a way in which to ensure economic outcomes. But that's not what's happening. What happened is that economic policies are being manifested in a way to ensure inequalities. So if you're going to have inequality, then you can't reasonably talk about providing for everybody because it's simply politically unfathomable. It's simply politically impossible. It's unattainable. And so, therefore, we have to begin to understand that when we talk about capitalism, it's, about, it's really about power. It's not about money. It's not about capital. It's not about any of that stuff. It's about power, pure and simple. This is why you can justify your 300 families having more wealth than 90% of the world's population and don't have a problem with that. So this question in terms of reform versus revolution is a very key in terms of addressing this political uh, imbalance as it relates to those in positions of power and the, mass, the multitude of people who have no power. That equation can't be reversed simply by discussion, by discourse, or by hoping that somehow that people in positions of power will actually change their behavior. It's not going to happen. It's going to be a political. It's, it's going to be political. It's going to be political in nature, in terms of the struggle to bring about a fundamental change. You know, in terms of you know the allocation of resources in the world. It's a political question, and let's be clear. So. When you talk about, you know, uh, reform versus revolution, there's no question about it. In order to satisfy your political needs in terms of getting out what you need, it has to be done in a way in which is revolutionary. It can't be do it can't can't be uh, achieved by reform. And lastly, let me just say this: the question in terms of the question in terms of class. Let's be very very clear on the question of class. Class is very much evident in terms of the society. Uh, in terms of human society, it's always been and always will be. Uh, those classes indistinguishable. I mean, there's no way to get around that. That's the bottom line is that you're going to have some people who specialize in something, other people specialize in other things. So class is inevitable, and so no one would ref- refute that. The problem is that when you when when, when class when, when when the problem is that when class serves the interests of those in positions of power. In other words, if I'm a middle of the road or middle income, if I got enough money to have a house, a car. A few bank, a few dollars in the bank, and I'm content. Then, in that real, in, in that regard, then I'm very much complicitous in terms of what goes into society because all the evil, all the wrong that's perpetrated against people who are poor, people who are hungry, people un, un, unemployed, uh, people who are not not sheltered, all of those concerns become for me become unimportant because my needs are satisfied. I'm not concerned about the needs of others. And so, therefore, in, in, in the more to the extent that I embrace reform, I can always, in my mind, justify why people are suffering. I can say, well, they don't, but they're lazy. Well, they're, 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 they're nonproductive. Uh, they, they didn't get enough education. Uh, they, uh, uh, they don't work, when, when they had a job, they didn't work hard enough. Uh, why don't they work three jobs? Uh, I can find an, a, a, a myriad of reasons to justify that kind of that kind of disparity in society. You know, once I buy into that class, buy into that class argument, and so therefore, if we don't come to a political understanding in terms of how the world is organized, then we begin to understand. Once we come to a political understanding of the world, then we begin to understand that when we talk about the world of politics, what affects another human being impacts impacts me. You know, as they say, as they say in the Bantu in the Bantu language, you know. What what affects one affects all, and it's important that we understand that point. But we only come to that, that realization is that once we have a political understanding of the world in which we live in, and in the context of politics, we, we're talking about we're not talking about reform, we're talking about change. 
we're talking about the, the evisceration of the destruction of the capitalist system, which is diametrically opposed to the interests of humanity, not just in America, but throughout the world. Those are political considerations. Those are revolutionary considerations. And we must decide as a human species whether or not human beings are in, endowed or human beings certainly should be endowed with the right to food, shelves, and education. Those things we must agree is a right. But those things are, are revolutionary. And if we don't fight for them, the bottom line is that they're not going to come into fruition. They're not going to come into existence. Uh, so this is, this is the problem that we're, fundamentally, we're confronted with. So I agree that when you talk about the question in terms of reform versus, versus revolution, the open solution for all of us, and I think societies like Cuba, Venezuela, Nicaragua, uh, former Yugoslavia, uh, you know, uh, countries like that, I think they, rev- they recognize the, 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 the utility of, of, of revolution in terms of bringing about an end to the problems that are confronting humanity, but understanding that in order to achieve those things, there must have been a re- revolutionary solution uh, to the problems that human beings face. And I'll close with that, Brother Africa. Thank you, Brother Haiki. Brother Anthony, what did you learn from the segment by Brother Kwame Ture and the whole struggle between revolution versus reform? Are you there with me, Brother Anthony? While we wait for mm-hmm. Brother Anthony to come up. Yes, uh, yes, I, I'm with you. Okay, the mic is yours. Okay, uh, let's see. In terms of uh, uh, revo- uh, revolution versus reform, revolution represents a fundamental change in the way society is run, whereas reform does not. Uh, uh, a reformist position uh, will, 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 will keep uh, certain institutions intact, whereas uh, capitalism, uh, uh, the fight against capitalism, represents uh, a change in principle, uh, method, and way of life. And uh, so that's the, those are the, uh, the 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 big the biggest differences I see. And uh, if you were to look at countries that are struggling to build socialism, uh, like uh, the Democratic People's Republic of uh, Korea and uh, Cuba, you will see that. And. Uh, and uh, you know, uh, you know, society is run totally differently in Cuba today than it was under the Batista regime, for example. And uh, you know, and uh, you know, and there's a great emphasis on uh, on uh, on human development and transforming the person, which you don't see under capitalism. And Thank uh, you, those are... Go ahead. Finish your point, Brother Anthony. Finish your point. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and, uh, and, and, those are the, and, and uh, those are the key things in terms of distinguishing between reform and revolution. Thank you, Brother Anthony. Going from Brother Anthony to Brother Moses. Talk to us. What did you learn as it relates to religion? 
as relates to revolution versus reform. Brother Moses. Well, revolution is, is a change. It's progressive change. It's not only change, but it's qualitative change. We know that quantitative changes lead to qualitative changes, just as a butterfly turns into a, a caterpillar turns into a butterfly. Qualitative changes. The revolution, you know, is the evolution of society to a, its destiny in terms of freeing up humanity. And uh, it takes consciousness, a scientific mind, and uh, a scientific people who are determined to be free. And people united will never be defeated. And so I've learned that revolution is the solution to our problem. A scientific socialism is the answer. Thank you, Brother Moses. And we now go to Sister Eleanor. What did you learn, Sister Eleanor? as it relates to the discussion of revolution versus reform. I don't know why I keep saying that religion bag, so y'all y'all forgive me. Truth Eleanor. Yes, revolution uh brings about quantitative change uh with the utilization of scientific socialism you see a revolutionary change as we have seen in Cuba, uh, uh, as we have seen uh, the people of Nicaragua struggling to have a revolutionary change. Cuba has been successful. We see that oftentimes uh, there are reforms that can help you there, but oftentimes people embrace the reforms as the solution. And so that's where scientific socialism and the education of the people are so important. But we're at a pivotal point in, in, in on on planet Earth Right now, there are three major objectives, revolution being one, to change the condition of how people live, and people are addressing that issue. You saw recently at the Egyptian Climate Change Summit that uh, for the first time, the issue of reparations was brought up. Uh, uh, it, it, uh, climate reparations emerged as a topic at the uh, uh, recent climate change summit in Egypt. That's an, uh, 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 something that can lend itself to revolution. Uh, we 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 see that uh, with the change from carbon dependency. Uh, and climate change that Africa becomes much more important. It becomes an equal partner. Now, we can see the possibility of revolution simply because um, the summit was held on December 15th and on December, uh, uh, it was held on December 15th, 2022. And on December 20th, 2022, President Biden signed that executive order 
from the Trump era, one three eight one eight. So if nothing else, that tells me revolution is in the air, and uh, um, the need for, as I said, for uh, new new minerals, new new materials, new things to have now placed people in a, in a position of moving beyond neocolonialism and talking about liberation. And uh, uh, reforms, like voting is a reform. It's not the end all, but it empowers people to take over their community by allowing them to have it on their local municipalities uh, whether it's a state or a city, but it's not the end all. So it, it, it's it's a reform in the United States. We've seen its impact in Brazil, but we also know that uh, we see uh, changes with uh, labor changes uh, in Africa. Instead of having children and and poor workers using their hands to pull cobalt from the earth, we're going to see revolutionary changes in how workers organize that potential. Now, that won't be the end all, but that could be uh, uh, a reform that would help them move towards liberation. Uh, uh, And uh, we see in Nigeria, for example, where they become the, the like the second Hollywood. They call them Nollywood, where you see uh, opportunity for labor to organize and for the content of the materials produced to uh, be able to promote revolution. So uh, the whole notion of revolution depends on scientific socialism and the education of the masses and uh uh that 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 is our goal and uh it is a domestic goal here in the United States and it is a goal for the continent mother africa <laughs> and uh we should not confuse reform with revolution And with the president of South Africa speaking up, that was kind of a reform that he wants to produce these pharmaceuticals. But it's a great step forward. And when 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 Africa decides and has decided to speak out as a um, a uh, partner rather than a subject of the West. That's an example of revolutionary movement, in uh, my opinion. Uh, and uh, uh, the the three reasons, for example, uh, that was in the article, three reasons to pay attention to the White House summit in, with African leaders uh, uh, in December, December 15, 2022, laid out uh, the foundation for uh, uh, revolutionary change. 
Uh, one, in the way the economies are growing in Africa right now. Two, environmental changes moving towards solar and other industries. And uh, three, how uh, minerals and resources will be uh, sold, extra- extracted, sold, and 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 manufactured to the world economies is 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 an example uh, of the potential for a true revolutionary change, and I think we are moving in that direction. I think Thank Mother you, Africa is moving in that direction. Thank you, Sister Eleanor. You listen to Africa on the Move. They are in the seat and they are taking the heat because they are defining it. They are standing behind it. We may not give you what you want, but we do our best to give you what you need. You can hear Africa on the Moon every Sunday night at 7 p.m. U.S. Eastern Time. Please spread the word. This year we want to increase our listenership to at least 100,000 people more. And we can do that with organization cooperation. If you just spread the word, word alone by mouth, you know we Africans can make that happen. So we ask all our friends and supporters who love and listen to Africa on the Move, who want to move humanity forward, do us one particular favor in yourself, spread the word, say from Sunday night at 7 p.m., Africa on the Move is the place where you need to be. So we can speak to you other and talk shop. So at this point in time, we're going to be closing out this particular segment for the 22nd of January, 2023. When we come back, we have their final starts. This is Brother Africa, and we are about nine hours away on our way with the African Awareness Association to Cuba on that freedom ride. Since you missed this one, you better stay tuned because you'll be given a second chance to go in the summer. This is Africa on the Move. Creation of man Holding
children must be taught of Africa. The science and the art of Africa. Educate yourselves, Africa. Liberate yourselves, Africa. Keep your heads up high. No more will cry. Beautiful art Africa. A legend of the bar, Africa. That's right, you were made in Africa. Africa made you, it birthed you. And you should be proud to be an African. Africa made you and birthed you. Yes, you are extension of Africa. Welcome to Africa on the move. We're in our closing segment. This is the 22nd day of January 2023. We want to know today, what did you learn? You can email us at AfricaOnTheMove2 at gmail.com. And tell us and share with us, what did you learn? So at this point in time, we ask each particular panelist and analyst two minutes or less to make a quick closing remark on the theme tonight, what did you learn? We start off with Brother Moses, and we will ask him, Brother Moses, give me a summation of what did you learn today. The mic is yours. Yes, I learned that the struggle is protracted. It's a struggle of ideas that are material to the well-being of the people and which ideas will move society forward and which ideas will hold us back. We see in Israel the, the key national liberation struggle on this planet. We unraveling white supremacy, Jewish nationism called Zionism, and... Uh, we see that these, these struggles support each other. Apartheid is, is an evil that is, is supported by other, other equally evil um, people, people who have, have let, allowed race to become so prominent in their lives. Uh, I I've learned a lot. Thank you. Have a good night. Thank you, Brother Moses. You just made it when you're two minutes. Sister Eleanor, you have two minutes or less. What did you learn tonight? The mic is yours. Um, that uh, The struggle is on, and uh, when Joe, President Joe Biden, on December 20th, on the second anniversary of his presidential uh presidency uh that the uh article 
of the Executive Order 13818 was passed, was published in the Congressional Review, though it was extended, a Donald Trump-era order that was originally put into law by Donald Trump on December 20th, 2017. That lets me know that revolution in Africa is on the road. As 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 the order said, uh, he's concerned about human rights abuses and corruption undermining the value that forms uh, essential foundation of stable, secure, and functioning societies. And that's what it's about. Not that order, but that's what Africa is about. And he became aware of that uh, with the African Summit this December, past December 2022. So uh, the people are on the move. We should have confidence and faith in each other and uh, know that uh, liberation is not only a possibility, it will be a reality. And uh, that that is a true blessing. And uh, as we work to green the planet and, and Mother Africa becomes the center of that process along with the a great nation of Brazil and Cuba uh, with the lifting of the embargo, we will see a new world. Uh, Cuba doesn't export guns. It exports doctors. And now it is a chance for a great Twenty seconds is out. No, we say two minutes or less. Let's go. That's it. Thank you so much, and thank have you, a blessed you. week. Thank you very much. We still got to take the class. Learn, learn, learn how to do time. We got to make the appointment. Me and you, okay? We love you, though, love you. We love you, okay, brother Anthony. <laughs> two minutes or less. Your final thoughts for the day. Are you with us, brother Anthony? I guess we lost Brother Andrew, Brother Hackey, close us out and say a few words about African Wedding Association in conjunction with Africa on the Moon and other organizations. They'll be going on a freedom ride to Cuba in less than eight hours and 30 minutes, leaving out of Richmond, Virginia. Can you believe that, Brother Hackey? The mic is yours. Close us out. Well, well Brother Africa, you know, it's, it's good organizations such as African Awareness uh, uh making that move in terms of solidifying our place in history in terms of, you know, recognizing the importance of the Cuban Revolution and what it means to humanity. Uh, one of the things that we talk about, the problems that are so peculiar to the society, it's comforting to know that places like Cuba actually exist where humanity is, 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 is important. We're trying to bring the best out of humanity is, 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 is priority. And so, therefore, because it exists in places like you, then we understand that it's possible. Uh, so regardless of the kind of naysayers that exist in the capitalist society, which tell you that things have to exist in the capitalist mode, we understand there are adequate examples in terms of systems in place which highlight the importance in terms of uplifting humanity. And, and, and in doing so, understand that in uplifting humanity, then also 
Uh, it means you, that uh, you know, in the short, the future of humanity is insured. Now, my closing statement, Brother Africa, is this: you know, one of the things you know, there's a serious fight going on internationally around uh, um, the direction of the world. Keep in mind, the United States funded China specifically because the idea was that with China's large population. Uh, capitalists in the Western world commit tons and tons of money. The, the, the capitalist leadership say, fine, we can do that. We, you, you can set up shop, but here's the thing. Uh, we're going to have certain concessions in terms of you have to abide by in terms of investing in our country. And the U.S. and the Western world agreed. So, as a, as, so what happens is that the, the, the communist leadership decided that, listen, with all this wealth that we're accruing, all this investments from, coming from the West, we're going to use it in a responsible manner. We're going to take this wealth coming from the West and we're going to use it to enrich, to empower our people. So as a consequence, China was able to uh, to, to, to mediate the, the poverty of over 500 million people. That's quite an accomplishment. That's an accomplishment that hasn't been achieved in the history of human beings. So uh, China did that because it, it was vested in, 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 in the interest of its people. And here's the thing we have to understand. And China invested in its people. It angered the United States because the idea was to extract wealth out of China not to ensure that China enhances its wealth. And so as a consequence, China became an adversary enemy of the United States and the West particularly. Uh, so therefore, when we talk about this whole struggle in terms of a multipolar world, keep in mind the United States has been calling shots for a while, and it wants to continue to call the shots. Well, the reality is that the United States calling the shots in terms of direction, economic direction of the world is being challenged now by countries like Russia, countries like China. And to, to some extent, the BRIC nations, in terms of, you know, uh, setting the stage in terms of, you know, what, what they perceive as the direct uh, uh, position of the world should take in terms of economic affairs. Uh, so clearly, this kind of uh, this kind of uh, in, in, uh, hostility toward places like China, because of the death that these countries that actually advocate for the interests of humanity, is something that fundamentally doesn't sit well with 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 with, with America oligarchs. They don't like that idea, and so therefore. They have chose to attempt to bring China down by sanctions. But, of course, in, in implementing those sanctions, what we understand that the people who are most fundamentally impacted by those sanctions are not necessarily Chinese people, even though there, there's minor damage being done on, on a global scale. The real damage is being committed against the people right here in the United States. And as a consequence, with the homelessness, the unemployment, uh, people without shelter, the people without quality education, all those things people need to thrive are constantly being... Uh, uh, reduced or reduced great uh, 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 greater instances, um, um, you know, you know, as time go on, and so therefore, given this reality, we have that as ourselves as a human being, do we have a fundamental right, you know, to 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 to, to exist? Do we have that fundamental right. If your position is that we have a fundamental right as human beings to exist, then it seems to me that we have to also understand we have a fundamental right to fight to bring it to existence. That which we feel we 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 are old as human beings, and so to to that extent, I think communities have to become engaged in terms of what's going on in the world and understand that these are not isolated situations that has nothing to do with you. Everything you read in the paper, everything you see on television, everything you hear has some has some relationship to your to conditions right here in America, and understanding that we have a vested obligation not only understand what's going on in the world. We have a lesser obligation to to create those conditions in our communities 
which would allow us the, the opportunity for some longevity in the, in the society despite the kind of, uh, despite the kind of um, uh, um, disregard uh, for human life uh, that is that's perpetuated, perpetuated by those positions of power in American society. So having said that, Brother Africa, as always, I encourage people to unravel the matrix because uh, it's key. Uh, we talk about the importance in terms of community awareness, uh, so we talk about the, the, the importance in terms of community understanding. Those things are fundamentally have to be worked at. And, and the way it starts is, first and foremost, we have to critique our own, our own, our own perception in terms of our self-interest. To the extent that our self-interest corresponds with the interests of the state, then I think we have to reevaluate those interests and begin to understand that if we do things in furtherance of the state, then we can't realistically expect twenty seconds, brother Hackey. Twenty seconds. Twenty seconds. Yes, we can't Yeah, I got you. I got you. We can't realistically expect things to get better. And on that note, we have a good night. Saying to you, brother Hackey. Saying to all our panelists and analysts, to our listening audience. We really, really appreciate you taking time to listen and join us every Sunday evening from 7 Eastern Time, U.S. We also would like to thank all those who have supported particular Peter Rye under the African Awareness Association because there have been many um, obstacles, and like we said, and like they said, that we are on the road of liberation and ain't nothing stopping them now. So we want to let all those who made it possible for this journey to take place in less than eight hours now to thank you, but watch our back because we will be turning back on returning back on the 30th of this month. And like all things, we fight power, power fight back. So until next time, tune in next week. This is Brother Africa. This is Africa on the Moon. And we ask you this question. If you had all the money in the world, what would you do with it? We'll see you next week. This is Africa.
With the Lucky Land Plus, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. <laughs> 